My name is Tahil Sharma. I'm the Regional Coordinator for North America for the United Religions Initiative. And this is the Compassionate Las Vegas Podcast. Welcome to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast where we highlight the strength of our city, the spirit of our people, and share your stories of compassion. Welcome back to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I'm your host, Will Rucker. Thank you for listening. I've got a question for you. Have you affirmed the Charter for Compassion yet? We've had some incredible, compassionate conversations, and I hope that they've inspired you to personally make compassion your North Star. The Charter says, in part, the principle of compassion lies at the heart of all religious, ethical, and spiritual traditions, calling us always to treat all others as we wish to be treated ourselves. Compassion impels us to work tirelessly to alleviate the suffering of our fellow creatures, to dethrone ourselves from the center of our world and put another there, and to honor the inviolable sanctity of every single human being, treating everybody without exception with absolute justice, equity, and respect. Now that's something I'm behind. How about you? You can affirm the charter at CompassionateLV.org. I really hope that you do. If you're not quite ready, I think today's conversation just might push you over the edge. I had the privilege to speak with a gentleman that is an interfaith activist based in Los Angeles who was born to a Hindu father and a Sikh mother who works as the North American coordinator for the United Religions Initiative, the world's largest grassroots interfaith network. Following the Oak Creek, Wisconsin shooting of a Sikh temple in 2012, Tahil became involved in efforts for interfaith literacy and social justice and has been doing this work professionally for the past seven years. He serves as one of three interfaith ministers in residence for the Episcopal Diocese of Los Angeles, and he serves as the coordinator for a coalition of progressive Hindus. Tahil also serves various organizations in different capacities to educate, engage, and serve various communities that promote interfaith cooperation and ethical pluralism and social and productive norms in society, including the Interfaith Youth Corps, the Parliament of World's Religions, and the Interreligious Council of Southern California. He is also a contributing author to books, including Co-Human Harmony, Using Our Shared Humanity to Bridge Divides, Hindu Approaches to Spiritual Care, Chaplaincy in Theory and Practice, and Acting on Faith, Stories of Courage, Activism, and Hope Across Religions. I'm so excited for you to hear this conversation. You are truly in for a treat. So without further ado, let's get into it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I've been looking forward to this conversation since we met a few weeks back. And the work that URI is doing, I think, is so important, particularly in this time that we're living uh, with the chaos that is ensuing. I think that your work gives hope and inspiration. And of course, life without hope isn't really worth living. So you're really giving us a reason to live. So I hope you you recognize and own the value of what you're doing. I appreciate your kind words, and I definitely know that 
we're not in an easy time, but that doesn't mean we can't uplift each other during this experience. So I appreciate the space of being here and to be able to connect with so many others. Absolutely. So my first question, it's the one I put the most thought into. I ask every guest this and, you know, I spend hours just devising this question for this guest. So who are you and how do you define compassion? I think I can answer both of those questions with one answer, I hope. Um, by being human, I am innately compassionate. Um, as someone who grew up in a dual religious family, I come from a Hindu and a Sikh background. Um, I've gotten, you know, two blessed visions and understandings of what the divine means to me. And if it's something that I've come to understand, it's that the light of the divine, the light of God exists in all things. Therefore, it means I have the responsibility to share that kindness and compassion to others. And more importantly, that those things that are not of me directly are me regardless. Wow, that's big. And, and compassion at the end of the day actually means that I am being kind to myself, even if that thing is not directly me. Can you say that last part one more time? Compassion means that even if that thing is not directly me, it is a part of me. Therefore, I must continue to share compassion with it. Wow. I think we could leave it right there for the whole podcast. That, that's huge. If we just adopt that, man, would our world be different today? Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. What was it like growing up with a dual faith household? Not too many people have that experience. Yeah, um, it was definitely interesting. Uh, my parents gave me, you know, uh, a basic understanding of what the traditions taught and let me sort of run with it after that um, because they knew that giving me the openness and opportunity to learn about others meant that I had to dictate what that would mean for me. So they said, these are the two religions that we have. This is our experience with it. If you go from here and want to learn about other communities, we won't stop you. And they lived up to that in every single way because I remember going to Sunday service with many friends and my babysitter for multiple denominations of Christianity. I would visit a number of friends who would be going to Shabbat services and Juma prayers on Fridays. Um, and realizing that this diversity is equally something that's different from me, but that is still a, an extension of me. Because getting to learn about those communities gave me a better understanding of my own traditions and my own community. Wow. I think that that is so true. One of the things I love that we do here in Las Vegas every fall are the interfaith forums. And so you'll have a panel of five to eight different faiths all sharing their perspectives on the same topic. And by the end of the night, everyone's calling themselves, you know, all five or eight faiths because we're like, we are so similar in how we address really the human condition and need. So I, I think that's powerful. And that leads us to your work with URI. What does URI stand for and what does it do? Mm -hmm. URI is the United Religions Initiative. Um, it's been an organization that's existed for just about 20 years now, and it is the world's largest grassroots interfaith network of organizations. We're over 1,050 chapters in 108 countries, and we are dedicated to the idea that 
the interfaith movement is not separate from mainstream society. It's reminding us how religious and secular pluralism are part of a daily routine of the human experience. And that means not just instilling compassion, but hope, peace, justice, and healing into communities. Mm. That's a big umbrella and mm-hmm. so vital. That healing piece is something I don't hear talked about too often in, in this type of work, because I think often we feel as though that's it's not our place to address it, maybe because it may seem too big to overcome, or the fact that because we have the illusion of this separation, we don't think we can address it in an interfaith setting. Talk a little bit more about that piece of it. Absolutely. Um, from a personal philosophy that I come from, um, discomfort is transformative. And what that means in spaces of interfaith is that we often like to talk about harmony. We like to often talk about peace and unity. But what that often does, it diminishes the individual identities of people. And it also diminishes the elephants in the room that might be causing concern. That if you let that fester enough, that it actually will bring disarray to a community rather than the peace and harmony you might be talking about. And sometimes these elephants may include political attitudes, race, age, socioeconomic status, privileges of all sorts. And the fact of the matter is, is addressing those things, being real about them, and those of privilege being allies to those who are underrepresented will actually bring us to a place of healing. But it does require some discomfort. It's something that we have to be consensually for. Uh, It's something that we have to remember that it might not be easy for everyone to talk about, let alone experience. But once those conversations start and you lead people towards saying that there's a way to reconcile the circumstance, then we can really see what healing looks like. Yeah, I think that is so beautifully stated. One of the things I get in trouble for as an interfaith minister is the fact that I will openly say, I don't believe in interfaith. I don't think it works. And what I mean by that is we ignore those elephants in the room oftentimes for the sake of peace, we call it, and we don't understand the tension that is really part of peace and active peacemaking. So I love that you address that. And the identities piece, I think, is is important as well. As an African-American, one of the things that I face on a regular basis, and whether it's family relationships, community relationships, is this idea that I should uh, be more black. And I grew up in an area where I was one of three black kids in my elementary school, like five in the middle school or something. So very few. So I don't really have that traditional experience, but because of my skin, people automatically place me in a box. And when I talk about unity and all of these things and forgiveness is a big one, they're like, you, you need to stop doing all that because you're, you're helping the man. Can we talk a little bit about how interfaith work interacts or intersects with social justice? Absolutely. I think those are um, inseparable things. Um, we cannot talk about creating spaces of interfaith cooperation without addressing the need for social justice. Because oftentimes we feel, or at least I've observed, that in interfaith communities we talk about, oh, it doesn't matter where you come from or who you are, so long as you're a good person looking for peace and, and, and healing in the world. 
And the fact of the matter is that's a very absurd proposition to put on people. How do you expect to renew peace, to renew justice, to renew healing, when you can't even acknowledge the differences of the individual that you're bringing into the space? I find that to be one of the most absurd things I've ever heard in my life. If I don't care about who you are as a person, then I don't care about the work for peace. I have to know your nuance. I have to know your context. I have to know what you've experienced so that we can address things contextually to have a better outcome. I can't just say, oh, we'll, let's just all get along because it doesn't matter who we are. It definitely matters. And acknowledging it, uplifting it, and talking about it is how we actually make it more representative of a truer peace than we're actually really striving for. Do you think there has to be some sort of recompense for past wrongs in order to get to that type of peace? To an extent there does, yes. Because when a community experiences trauma, the implications and the side effects can continue for decades and centuries. There's no doubt about that. We know that for the African-American experience in the United States. We know that for the indigenous experience in the United States. We know that for every minority community in the United States. And the fact of the matter is you want to start from a clean slate when everyone else has trauma seems quite off the mark for me. And not being able to address that actually doesn't acknowledge the history that got us to this point. And if we want to be able to move forward, we have to look back and learn from the mistakes that were made and work on them better. So allies need to constantly be in a state of learning to be able to help those that are underrepresented. Yeah, the, the ally piece is another one that I personally wrestle with. And I become a bit defensive of the allies because of how they are attacked for not getting every single thing right. Oh my gosh, you called us black. We're African-American today. Or you left out a letter. It's LGBTQIA plus now. You know, all of these little details, which for me, while they are important, they are not the important thing. And so for the allies to stay allies, I feel as though we have to extend a measure of grace and mm -hmm. do it in a spirit of educating where we let them know here's, here's the, your misstep so we don't ignore it or excuse it but we don't attack them for it. Have you right. experienced in this type of work where you have been vilified for something that was completely innocent? Me personally, I haven't actually. And I guess a part of the reason why that might be is because I always put myself in a state of learning, but I also acknowledge the fact when I do make mistakes and don't get defensive about it either. I think oftentimes when trying to present yourself as an ally to communities that might be under attack, it's always important to remember that we cannot, you know, strike a balance of violence from one end by exerting violence on another. Violence only begets violence. And we understand that very clearly. So to dehumanize or to belittle someone um, from a space where they're not at the same learning point or learning curve as you are is not fair to them. Um, but to, for that ally to be a better ally, they do have to remember that things do change. Language changes, communities change, circumstances change. And they have to be also ready to be in a space of learning at all times. And that's also for the person that I think is being underrepresented too. They're in a space where their community is always in conversation about newer things. 
they're always having to deal with new challenges and experiences every day because of coming from a more vulnerable position in society. So wisdom and compassion has to be a two-way street. Um, just because you are underrepresented does not mean you get to continue the cycle of violence and oppression through language or choices that may affect someone else. But the ally who may be in a position of privilege needs to keep themselves in check to make sure that they don't do the same either. That's a huge, huge point. Don't continue the cycle of violence. One thing I have noticed is often people want to become empowered so that they can oppress. And it's payback, you know, that sort of thing. How can someone who comes from a minority community or someone that has been oppressed enter into this type of work and feel safe where they can identify as a human and still know that they're, they're safe and that their identities or background or, or context, as you would say, is not being erased? There are a couple of ways of doing that. I think first and foremost, in interfaith spaces particularly, um, speaking for yourself is the most powerful thing. For people to hear your story first before they mark you as a brand ambassador for an entire community is always going to make the difference of who you are as a person and what aspect of the community you represent and not its entirety. Being able to hear those stories as I statements is always going to make a difference because you need to know the person as an expert on themselves, not as the person that's the expert on the community. That's they the, may have enough for just a second. That mm -hmm. I statement piece, I, I want to dive a little bit more deeply into that. Mm -hmm. when, when I'm called to be on a panel as the gay Christian pastor, they often put me in the role of all gay Christian pastors. And I'm like, I, I'm not. I, I have so many things that are so vastly different from the norm, so to speak, in that. How can we help to convey that I message more clearly when we're called, when we're speaking, and in this context? Storytelling. That is the only way. Um, as powerful as statistics might be, as powerful as history might be, People learn best through stories, and we know that from tradition and from thousands of years of storytelling, whether it comes from the messengers or prophets of our traditions or the communities that continue to bolster these new traditions. Um, storytelling is a very key part of how people understand the impact of so many different things. When I come into this space and tell you that I come from a dual religious background, it informs you first that someone like me exists, and two, that my unique experience might not be shared with someone else, but there are certain strands of my experience that you may, might resonate with, let alone other people. And in acknowledging that and recognizing that there are individuals like me, that multiplies the idea of how we understand the world, how we understand these virtues and um, ways of being able to build community, and more importantly, how do people connect with what's larger than them? And being able to see that happen in so many individual ways actually tells me more that, you know, there, there isn't just 2.2 billion Christians. There are 2.2 billion Christianities because each person holds their understanding of Christ in a unique way. I, I'm just enjoying this because what you are saying is not only resonating with me personally, but it's resonating 
with what I've observed and what I hope to observe. That, that recognition that just because someone identifies as a Christian doesn't mean they're like the Christian you met before. And oftentimes, the, the God that you are against or hate or whatever you know, phrase you want to use to describe it, they're probably against that God too. But you don't know that because you haven't had that conversation. They haven't exchanged those stories. Right. With youth today, I see this happening at a mass scale where they're like, look, we, we have to stand up for the least of these. We have to basically embody a lot of these principles that are universal. But what I also notice is there is almost that reversal of roles where, as you mentioned earlier, they continue that cycle of violence where if someone does have a misstep, now they're not restored or rehabilitated, they're rejected. So how can we help our youth in this? And what are you seeing about youth and their spirituality? You know, that is one of the the most fast-paced changing landscapes in the United States. We know that for a fact because of the growing number of people who are becoming less associated with a single tradition, um, not defining themselves by a single tradition, or leaving the idea of religion and spirituality in its entirety. And the fact of the matter is, since that does speak to the larger fabric of the pluralism we're talking about in the United States, we have to acknowledge their concerns. We have to acknowledge and uplift their spaces and the um, context that they come from. And just as importantly, we have to acknowledge that the interfaith movement has all the space for belief, every kind of belief. As difficult as it might be for some people who see, you know, interfaith as only for religious or spiritual people, that's not how that works. So um, someone that doesn't have, a, excuse me, have a belief could participate? Absolutely. And I, I would say that, you know, unequivocally, because it is a belief to not have those kinds of beliefs. And the fact of the matter is it doesn't make them less qualified to have, you know, a moral compass. It doesn't make them less qualified to do the good work in the world. And it doesn't make them less qualified to be kind, loving individuals who are willing to see a better world just like we do as religious or spiritual people. So for someone who believes that without a belief in a particular deity, you can't be a good person, where do those roads meet? How do they work together? We can't play the role of God. So we cannot dictate and judge and contemplate and be concerned in those ways about the larger decisions that the, that person makes individually. What we have to remember is that if we have a genuine belief that God exists in all things, like I do as a Hindu and a Sikh, that's, that's without exception. I have to look at the atheist with the same lens. And I have to look at the secular humanist with the same lens or the agnostic or the person that is philosophically oriented. Because the fact of the matter is that person is still that extension of me and me disrespecting them, vilifying them, dehumanizing them is reflecting more like a mirror than it is a different individual. It's big. It's really big. And I think that mirror piece may be one of the things that frightens a lot of us because we don't necessarily want to see who we really are. And in this time where we're so polarized, for example, you have people in this time protesting to reopen our economy, so to speak, 
And then others are like, no, stay at home. And you know, this has been going on for some time. Really, the both parties want the same thing, which is for us to be in a good space and be well as a people. And mm-hmm. the I think there's a mis, misconception about projection, thinking that projection is, well, their action is really what I want to be doing, where it's not really the action that's the projection piece. It's more of the the idea behind it. So in that that idea, that concept, how can we reconcile the fact that you are I? I mean, there are a couple of ways, Um, you know, in in terms of talking about the pandemic. On one side, we are still having, you know, the conversation of opening and closing. And both sides of the argument are reminding us how interdependent we are. If we are staying home and trying to promote social distancing, we're trying to make sure we don't get other people sick. If we're trying to reopen an economy, we have to remember the thousands, if not millions of people that we depend on to be able to live a life of privilege and stability. And the fact of the matter is if you don't learn or realize that we're in an interconnected state throughout the world, then I'm sorry, I don't know how to help you. You know what you just said, I'm probably going to clip that and and do it as a short video on Instagram or something because, wow, I haven't heard it phrased that way. The fact that we are even having this argument, this fight, this heated debate is evidence of our interconnectedness. That, I think, needs to be on every billboard across the country, across the world. Yes, absolutely. And the other thing that I think this pandemic really makes us think about when we talk about URI is the overlap of issues that are being highlighted because of this pandemic. This is, this, you know, fundamentally starts as a public health issue, but what this then evolves into is an economic issue, a working issue, an issue of racism, an issue of colorism, an issue of privilege, an issue of so many different things that didn't get put into the back burner. Actually, they overlapped on top of the pandemic. What do we do in that situation? We have to be able to address those things saying, this pandemic is affecting other people more than others. How do we uplift them? This pandemic is really impacting the way that we understand our interconnectedness. How do we make sure to represent represent and respect the sanctity of the individual and their ability to thrive while making sure they don't risk the lives of other people? All of those questions come to mind when we think about you know, this idea of you are I, because you and I are, be, are connected regardless of the distance. People are connected in acknowledgement of the diversity that they come from and the intersecting identities that they come from. And the point is, at the end of the day, if we don't strive to be able to uplift every community, then just injustice will thrive. Injustice will thrive if we don't do it. And Dr. King has said it f- best, and injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Right. If we don't acknowledge how significant that is in this state of a pandemic, which is unprecedented, which was predictable, we could be acting upon it in better ways, but we aren't. We tend to, uh, we tend to repeat history or at least make it rhyme again. We're told in public spaces, you don't discuss religion and you don't discuss politics. And we're talking about both at the same time right now. 
how do we move forward once we're past this I don't even know what to call it because I don't think we're at a peak of it. I just think we're, we're in the midst of it. How do we go forward and take advantage of this opportunity to recognize our interconnectedness instead of going, getting uh, further apart? How do we draw together and paint this picture in a way that people that may not speak this language, that may, may not understand inter interconnectedness in the way that we do, they are about civil liberties and freedom which really without a community, you can't be free anyway. So how do we paint that picture and have this conversation in a way that at the end of this, we're better off than when we began? Um, so first, we need to cut the crap about taboo subjects. Um, we are in a space where technology, innovation, um, our ability to really learn about the world is evolving and not being able to talk about things seems absolutely redundant to me. You should be able to talk about things because that is what you know creates ingenuity, it creates curiosity, it challenges your perceptions, it helps you grow your aspect of how you understand the world. You shouldn't be pushing that aside because it makes you uncomfortable. It should be encouraging you to actually learn about how other people think and how the world functions. Um, secondly, we need to stop confusing um, political correctness for dehumanization. A lot of people like to say that they like to tell it like it is or that they'd like to be politically incorrect when that is a misnomer for actually, you know, putting communities that are often stereotyped and misjudged and discriminated against for being absolutely put into a place of, you know, terror and injustice. And I think, <clears throat> no offense to them, but I believe that's BS. That I think that for me is, is an excuse to insult people rather than actually have a constructive conversation with them. And third, um, if we're going to strike for compassion, it can't be through a theology of convenience. You cannot only be compassionate to people that you're comfortable with. You cannot be only compassionate to people who you're buddy pally with. It's not just family. It's not just your friends. It's not just people you profit off of. You have to be compassionate and uplifting of every person. And being able to strike, strike that norm in a society where that status quo is not even a thought um, is a long ways away. And I think this pandemic is really giving us that wake-up call to think about that. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's what I've got after that. Wow. You are, are so right in the, the idea that... I, I agree. I am working on, especially doing this podcast and, you know, being associated with a larger organization, I have to watch what I say in a different way. Um, my own channel, I just, I just let it out. But there is a difference between dehumanizing someone and political correctness. I absolutely, absolutely agree with that. And I think that having these, these tough conversations, candid conversations, compassionate conversations, is of the utmost value because if we have this facade, we never get past that to the heart of the matter where we are all connected and are really all seeking the same essential things. Now, our road to those things can be vastly different and the priority of those things may be different. I, I notice people with the sign saying, I need a haircut. Like for them, that's their priority. Right. Well, with the people I interact with, 
I, they need a sandwich, <laughs> you know, different priority here. But because of how uh, privileged we are, of how prosperous we've been as a, as a people, we sometimes forget that there are those that don't enjoy the luxuries and conveniences that we enjoy. On the outro of every episode, I say that compassion and love are not luxuries, they're necessities. And I mean that with every fiber of my being, because unless we employ both of those, no one wins. And you can have one person that has all of the cheese, Mm -hmm. but once everyone else is gone, the cheese disappears too, because there's no one to collaborate with to make that. So I want to return just kind of to our youth for a moment. I, I have so much hope. And I am so inspired by their energy and their passion. We have Camp Anytown Las Vegas, which is doing amazing things. And I know, you know, Rico who was on the podcast a few episodes ago, mm-hmm. the work that they're doing and, and changing that culture is, is beautiful to see. Mm-hmm. What can we do to empower youth to lead us? Absolutely. I had this um, conversation with our uh, global youth engagement staff person at URI. Her name is Sarah Oliver. Um, She and I, you know, have been doing social activism work before we entered our roles here at the United Religions Initiative. And for us both being young people who are involved in major positions of leadership to be able to help coordinate an organization like this means that other organizations should think about why are you not giving young people the role to play in making big decisions? Oftentimes, and Sarah and I talked about this uh, pretty quickly, um, giving a young person leadership is not making them take over social media and newsletters. That is not leadership. That is making them use something that they do in their pastime to get them to maybe get a little money or volunteer experience or some sort of like medal Um, that they're participating in something bigger. And the fact of the matter is that's actually taking away and undermining the leadership and capabilities that they have. Young people, especially now, and this is going to keep becoming a bigger norm over time, young people are brilliant. People under 35 know what the heck they're doing and they're stuck in very strange situations right now. Give them the baton and let them lead for themselves. They have the ideas, they have the strategies, they have the resources, they have the networks. Give them the baton. It should not be that hard. (laughs) (laughs) And the fact of the matter is it's one of the most difficult things because I understand legacy issues. I understand, you know, um, giving someone new something so precious to you. And the fact of the matter is this is what actually makes legacy sustainable. When you put trust into a young person, who has these ways of being able to be revolutionary in the way that we're able to do our work now, whether it's through the digital world or whether it's through activism and advocacy on the ground, let them do what they're good at doing, empower them for their strengths, help them through their challenges and make them feel like they are a part of a community rather than someone you're hiring for, you know, social capital. Yeah. Where you just bring them in for volunteership and you bring them in to help them with these, you know, remedial tasks. They've done their work, they've done their leadership and they're out. That's not fair. 
You're, you're so right. And I, I, I feel judged in this moment because I always look for a young person to do social media. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and if the, and see, there's a difference, right? If they want to do it, if that's where they feel like they will thrive, of course, let them be in that position. But if that's not what they're looking for and they want to be more involved, they want to take a level of leadership, let them make the decisions, let them lead and let them do their thing. Um, when we look historically, the folks that really make the revolutions pop are young. And the greatest leaders that we, Dr. King, for example, he was not old when he led that movement. And I think over the course of history, we kind of forget that, you know, it's young people that spark this. Mm-hmm. How can we better mentor them so that we feel safe with change and i'm saying we because i'm we don't know numbers here but i might be a little older than 35 so uh, but how can we we do that mentorship program so that we're comfortable with the changes they're making and knowing that they're equipped to not repeat the same mistakes we've made um there are a couple of ways so if we're not focusing on the number thing i am under 35 <laughs> and um I wouldn't, I wouldn't use the term mentorship unless it's mutual. If it's going to be about mentoring them about not making the same mistakes, we have to look at it from the perspective of wisdom being a two-way street. Hmm. The wisdom of the elders is always going to be important in learning about the past. And the wisdom of the young people is what reminds the old people that things are changing. And we have to let there be spaces where people mentor each other. Uh, this is not about, you know, trying to um, set a precedent where only certain people are allowed to have access to knowledge or certain access to what is right and what is wrong. Um, and the point about making mistakes is you can't, you can't actually do these changes without making mistakes because this is a learning process. No one knows how to do a revolution, right? No one knows how to, you know, create justice correctly or to everyone's needs. Mistakes are going to be made. And if there's going to be any learning from that, it shouldn't be not how to make the mistake. It's how to learn from previous mistakes and do a better job. I love that. That's fantastic. And that two-way street, again, brings us back to the theme of interconnectedness Mm -hmm. and really humility as well, knowing that I can learn from you. So the person that has had the greatest impact on my life is my great grandmother. And I was with her from the time I was a baby and she would come spend the summers with us. Both of my parents worked, but there's a 60 year or so age difference between us. But one thing she never made me feel like was a child. I always felt empowered. And, you know, she taught me how to make soup and cook and do the different things that, that I do, you know, for fun now. But it was, we were learning from each other. She would always kind of fuss at me a little because I would throw beans into the soup because I love beans. And she's like, you got to put them in early or they won't be done. So we collaborated on that. I didn't know like you couldn't cook beans in 10 minutes. But she also didn't put beans in her soup till I started doing it. So we worked together and the solution we created together was much better than what we would have done apart. So I love that you highlight that two-way street and that mentorship is both ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish we had more time, but we do have to close here. The thing, and you answered this in your opening, but I still want to ask you this question, which is, 
how are you embodying compassion in the world today? I am embodying passion, uh, compassion in two ways. Sorry, not passion. That's a different conversation. <laughs> um, I'm embodying compassion by promoting active listening and by um, letting people or helping people um, uplift their strengths. Um, in a space like URI where um, the work is meaningful, the work of interfaith has a multitude of definitions, the most important thing that I can do is make sure I hear people and where they come from. A good example of that is um, a young woman from uh, Camp Anytown named Sanaya, um, who recently went on one of our uh, UN trips uh, to really learn about the work that's, that's happening on the ground and the work of young people around the world. And one of the conversations that she brought up um, was about, you know, addressing racism in the midst of the pandemic and, you know, highlighting the fact that Black and African-American communities are being impacted adversely because of this pandemic, because of the community history, and that the Asian community is being impacted by racism because of the stereotypes that have gone with, you know, spreading fake news about this disease. And in listening to her and really realizing how she created a bridge between communities to establish this idea of racial justice through a digital and an in-person setting means so much. When you can create solidarity, solidarity saying, we're being misjudged and we're being mistreated because we are different. And our identities are being used without our permission to say terrible things and to assume the worst of us. And two communities are now starting to have joint conversations on how do we push away against this racism? How do we push for better representation? How do we push for better support and resources so our communities can get through this and we don't have to go through a worse adverse effect? And that just came from me listening. I didn't have to say anything. I didn't have to put my ideas in. I didn't have to correct or critique or put, constantly put in a, uh, an interrogative stance just for me to learn how brilliant Sanaya was in being able to really speak up about these things. And that's where you have to learn how powerful active listening is in uplifting that person. Awesome, I love it. So how do people connect with you and with the organization? Are you on social media? How do they connect? Yeah, uh, people can find me on social media by putting my name. My Twitter and Instagram handle are interfaithman. Um, I love that. I think that that is fantastic. Um, and people can also um, look at uri.org or urinorthamerica.org for our region specifically. And they can search us up for the same names on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. You have offered us such gems, such great wisdom in your young self. <laughs> I really appreciated this conversation and I look forward, we'll have to do this again, okay? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Will, for your time. I appreciate it. This has been Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. Thank you for listening. Today's episode was made possible by the Jameson Foundation in partnership with the Moonridge Group. There are so many amazing things happening and so many people have incredible stories to share. So if you are one of those people, this is your platform. Email me at will at winningwithwill.com. 
Use the subject line, Compassionate LV, and let me know your story. I would love to have you on the show or to feature your story in a future episode. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already and leave a five-star review. Your review and rating helps others to find this podcast and helps to further the mission to make Las Vegas a more compassionate place to live, work, and play. Today, Tahil shared with us so many incredible things. Just go through the laundry list. You have to listen to the episode all again because there were so many things. But I want to hear what you're doing to embody compassion in the world. What are some things you would recommend we try? Share those in your review because you just may be featured in a future episode. In case you didn't know, Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast, is now on YouTube. It's great to listen to these amazing guests, and we've had some fantastic people on the show. But it's even better to see them live and in living color on YouTube. Just search Compassionate LV Podcast with Will Rucker, and the channel will pop right up. Love and compassion aren't luxuries. They are necessities. Live the golden rule and treat others the way you would want to be treated. Together, we can make a difference. Together, we will make the world a more compassionate place. Know that you are not just a drop in the ocean. You are the entire ocean in a drop. Be well, my friends, and we will meet again on the next episode of Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast.